today, would you stand as we read two passages together this morning? The first, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll begin reading in the second half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, this is the Lord declaring to David, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for me and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So keep that in mind, establishing his throne, his kingdom forever. Daniel chapter seven, beginning in verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's 2 Samuel 7 and Daniel chapter 7. It's the word of God for the people of God. And God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do ask in your kindness that you would shape and design this time uh, to our good and for your glory. We ask that in the power of your spirit that your word uh, would move, that the testimony of your spirit would be true, that that the sharpness of your word would divide us to the core of our being, uh, illuminating where our lives do not align with Christ. May you correct us, rebuke us, and may you encourage us. And may your word rest upon us this morning with power. It's in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen. If you're with us, and it's, it's completely fine. If you weren't, you're not going to uh, miss anything about the sermon. But to draw your mind back to this spring, if you were able to come to the evening we hosted with Mitch Mayer for the Bible overview, uh, you would be able to recall to mind this lens, this kind of overarching lens through which he gave us to read the scriptures. Uh, he gave it in a little bit of a, uh, uh, whatever the thing is, anachronism, what is it called? A-M-P-E-C, whatever it's called. Uh, a stood for anticipation. Okay, now, anticipation was the way he summed up the lens through which we read the entirety of the Old Testament. The idea that we are anticipating that someone is coming, beginning in Genesis chapter 3.15, that God promises someone's going to come who's going to crush the serpent. There will be an ultimate victory one day. And so we read Genesis 3.15 forward. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Okay, who is he? What's he going to be like? And as the Old Testament progresses, we get more details. So we learn Genesis 5 is going to be in the line of Seth. We learn Genesis 6 that that's going to come from the line of Noah. We learn in Genesis 12 that he's going to come from the line of Abraham. And so more and more details are added to the story of someone is coming. Moses tells us it's going to be a prophet who's greater than I am. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and more detail is added to the someone is coming. And what God says about the promised one all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, he tells to David here, the promised one who's going to come, he is going to be a king. And David, not only is he going to be a king, he's going to be a king who comes from your line. And a promise is made to David in 2 Samuel 7 
that David, when you are on your deathbed and your time is drawing near, you die with this singular promise, the one who is going to come and establish the kingdom of God is coming from your line. If you've been with us this summer, you'll be able to reflect upon the little ways here and there that uh, the various people preaching have tried to highlight it, how David points to his greater son, Christ, son according to the flesh, his lineage. And so along the way, we've tried to highlight uh, little incidences or details in David's life where, okay, so David is like this, and yet Jesus is a greater version of that, or David does this, and Jesus does it in a greater and better way, trying to draw in that, yes, though David is the shepherd king, there is a greater king who is to come. And now, it's a fun exercise if you were to sit back and take that, make it your personal Bible study. But let me give you a few that I've written down just to draw us back into this idea that David, though worthy of studying in his own right, ultimately is a shadow pointing to the more substantive king, Jesus. So, whereas David is anointed by Samuel, Jesus, at his baptism, is anointed by God. Though David goes into the valley and defeats Goliath, Jesus climbs Calvary to defeat sin and death. Though David commits adultery in John chapter 8, Jesus restores and forgives the adulterous woman. Though David's son dies that he might live, God's son dies that we might all have life eternal. Just as we saw last week that David returns from exile to a fractured and chaotic kingdom, Jesus one day is going to come back and set all disorder and chaos into its proper place. All sin and death and sorrow is done away with. Amen? And just like David's flock graze in a singular pasture, Jesus gathers his sheep from the ends of the earth. And lastly, though David wrote most of the Psalms, Jesus is the ultimate reason for our singing. That David points to Christ. And in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God adds a detail. The promised one is going to come, David. I, my promise to you is he's coming from your line, he will be a descendant of David. Now, the other passage we read this morning, if 2 Samuel 7 is the promise, Daniel chapter 7 is the prophecy. Let me read it again. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, don't miss that. If you do a cursory reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll notice that the most often used title Jesus takes upon himself is son of man. Maybe you've wondered, now why does he refer to himself like that? Okay, well, son of man has a double meaning. So when Daniel's looking and he says, I see someone like a son of man, that literally means someone in human appearance. We know Jesus comes as God in the flesh, truly man. So when Jesus references himself as son of man, he is appealing to the reality of his humanity. And yet, not only does Daniel in this vision see, says one like a son of man, he says, in the clouds of heaven, with the glory of heaven, this is not just a man, this is the God-man. 
So what is the prophecy added here to the detail of someone is coming? The one who is coming, not only will he be a king in the line of David according to the flesh, he will be heavenly, not just man, but also God. And when Jesus claims the title of son of man, he's not just saying, I truly am human. He's saying, if you're familiar with the scriptures, I am the one who Daniel was talking about. Now, what does Daniel say about him? He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So if 2 Samuel 7 is the promise, Daniel chapter 7 is the prophecy, a king is coming. And a king is coming who's going to be both God and man. And the king, according to his flesh, his humanity, is going to be a descendant of David. And then you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Have you ever read that verse and curiosity struck you? that Matthew actually gets his uh, chronology wrong. Son of David, son of Abraham. And most of the time you see a genealogy, it starts with the earliest person and then moves forward from there. Son of David, son of Abraham. Well, David comes after Abraham. What's Matthew up to? One of the primary purposes Matthew writes his gospel is he wants us to see the king. And in chapter one of verse one, before he ever goes through the lineage of Jesus according to Abraham, he says, son of David, the king is here, amen? What was promised in 2 Samuel 7, what was prophesied in Daniel chapter seven has come into historic reality. The king has arrived. Now, if the king has arrived, surely he has something to say about his kingdom. In Jesus, and in all of his earthly ministry, there are a couple themes, there are a couple messages that you could just put on repeat throughout the gospels. None may be more so than this. Mark chapter one, uh, 15. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Rejoice, the good news has come. So if Jesus is the king, what does he say about his kingdom? And that is where we will spend the majority of our time this morning. Because if he is the king, what is the nature of his kingdom? And we've read all about David. We know about David's kingdom. David's kingdom has boundaries. Uh, David's kingdom came uh, by this sort of uh, right and lineage. It had soldiers, it had battles, it had literal enemies that they would go to war against and fight. But what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? There is no country called Christian. No King Jesus sitting in a palace on earth that you can roll up to and talk to. 
no enemy, earthly considered, we're being commanded to bear arms and march against. But if he is the king, what is the nature of his kingdom? He tells us in Mark, how do you get entrance to the kingdom? That's the first thing. The way into entering the kingdom of God is not by right of birth, which would have been true of David's kingdom. The way you enter the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, is through repentance and faith. None of us are born with the rights to God. We're born according to the psalm that uh, Tony's last song was based off of, Psalm 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're not born being able to demand these rights of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes through repentance and faith. The kingdom of God is here, repent. So the first thing we learn about the greater shepherd king and his kingdom is entrance comes through repentance and faith. Well, Repentance from what and faith in what? Well, repentance from our sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Paul would say we hold this in first of first importance or of most importance, that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. It is repentance of our sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, in all of his kindness, if you want to join me here, you can. Matthew 13 begins to add more and more details about the nature of his kingdom. Because let's be candid with one another. And this is really no fault of our own. And this won't be true maybe of a handful of people here. But for most of us, uh, we have lived all of our lives in a, a capitalistic, democratic society. And that's fine. I'm not not, uh, in any way being negative towards that. But when that happens, it's just hard for us to naturally understand what it must be like to have lived underneath the rule of a king. That's not our situation. It's not our political climate. And so it's hard for us, at least for me, to make a leap from 2019 or from the 36 years I've had in this type of a political environment to then move myself and transport myself into what would it be like to live in an actual kingdom? It's hard for me even to define what that would be like for what would it be like to interact with a a king, a real king? Okay, so to help with that a little bit, I wanna give us uh, what I think is a, a good working definition of when we hear Jesus say kingdom, what is he talking about? And so for the rest of our time this morning, when you hear me say kingdom, I'm defining it as this, the rule and reign of Christ. That's all we mean by that. The rule and reign of Christ. So in Matthew 13, when Jesus gives parable after parable of what the kingdom is going to be like, he's teaching us when my rule and reign is coming more and more and more. Here's what it's going to be like. Here's what's going to happen. Here are things that you're going to observe. And in the few parables we're gonna look at this morning, we're gonna see uh, how the kingdom begins. We're gonna see the nature of the kingdom and we're gonna see the value of the kingdom. And again, when I say kingdom, it is the rule and reign of King Jesus. So Matthew chapter 13, look at it with me. Verse 31 through 33, Jesus says this. 
he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven, so here's our word, the rule and reign of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Okay, so Jesus begins with a mustard seed. Now, it's really easy to assume he's taking that analogy to teach us about the bigness of the kingdom. Right, here's this small little mustard seed, and it would have been a typical in this day to use it as an illustration of growth. And so you have the smallest of all seeds to the greatest of all garden plants. And somehow to read this passage, we would see, oh, he's teaching us about this glory and magnitude and size of God's kingdom come to earth. But I don't think that's what's happening here. The kingdom parables are to correct perspective. No Jewish person of the day would have assumed anything other than this grandiose, magnanimous, full of glory kingdom coming. Or Jesus didn't need to teach them a parable about the grand nature of the kingdom. They would have assumed that. Now the parable of the mustard seed, it's not as much about the bigness of the kingdom about correcting the perspective of how the kingdom would actually begin. That's why it begins with the seed. It says the kingdom is going to begin in the most inconspicuous, counterintuitive way you could think of. When God brings his kingdom to earth in this first coming of Jesus Christ, it doesn't come in chariots, It doesn't come in these mass proclamations to multitudes. It comes with the Son of God telling 12 men, you come follow me, you come follow me, you come follow me. The most inconspicuous of all beginnings, the Son of God on earth pouring his life into a few. Now, did he preach to the masses? Well, yeah, he preached to the masses. He did miracles to the masses. But the bulk of his ministry was King Jesus and this ragtag, undereducated, synagogue-rejected group of men. God, that was your plan? In 2019, we're sitting thousands of miles in an ocean away, still talking about the Lord our God. Amen? Jesus wants us to know his kingdom does not come according to the rhythms of this world. And this is a point for us. It's inconspicuous. God does not work according to the systems and structures of world society. It's why when Samuel goes to anoint David, God has to remind Samuel, be careful, I do not choose the same way the world does. I do not use the same types of values that the world employs. What Jesus says is, when my work is happening and when my kingdom is coming, it's very inconspicuous at first with not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of following. But if we are faithful to the call, 
like a mustard seed, it grows and grows and grows. And at the end of the day, when you survey the landscape, you go, that seed has turned into a mighty tree. Now that's both a corporate message to the way that the kingdom of God works, and there's a personal message in that for us as well. I have been guilty way too many times of making quick assumptions on the types of people God can use. And I value that based off of the things that impress me or the things that are useful in other arenas. So what does the world trumpet as to a platform for the usefulness of a person? Their wealth, their education, their social status, their health, their power. And we can take that and sometimes it is true, but oftentimes falsely assume, well, that's the exact type of person God would choose to mobilize his kingdom on earth. And yet oftentimes it's not. But how many times for the sure sake of worldly and fleshly thinking have I overlooked the poor in spirit for the popular in performance. Assuming, surely, that's the person God wants to use. We do it in our discipleship. What kind of people do you want to disciple? Well-spoken, articulate, uh, socially connected, easy to get along with, leadership potential. I was, oh, this was years ago, I used to, when I, in a former life, when I directed the Emerging Leader Program at Downline Ministries, we used to take them to kind of a, a bit of a ministry tour of Memphis, places they could volunteer. I always loved going, as the last thing that we did, we go down to Icon Ministries, some of you are familiar with the name Soup Campbell, uh, Discipleship Ministry in the Binghamton area. And uh, we get a preview of, of their discipleship programming uh, with the students there, and I still remember this vividly. There was a student, I, I don't remember his name, and he got up. He was, a, I think, going to be a senior at East High School. You know, and I had a seminary degree, okay? A seminary degree. Hmm. I get paid to be a Christian. Hmm. <laughs> I know some stuff. And Sue said, hey, this is so-and-so. I wish I could remember his name. Say so he's going to recite something from Ephesians for us. I'm going, oh, that's cute. All right, let's give us a little verse from Ephesians. Well, the young man could quote the book in its entirety. Now, you want to talk about the necessity of repentance and what you assume is going to happen? Surely this, surely this little high schooler from a more under-resourced community in our city just will give me a verse or two. I said, I don't even know if I've read the entire book of Ephesians after listening to him. Be careful. Not only does the kingdom come in inconspicuous ways and grow from there, it comes through plenty of people we may be tempted to overlook. Okay, so mustard seed. Let's look at the next one, 11. 
Same, same set of passages. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven. So, so the first one's about its beginning. Look, this one's about how, uh, how it actually operates. This is the, the logistics of the kingdom, if you will. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. So Jesus is the king. He's telling us about his kingdom. And he says, the nature and characteristic of my kingdom, this is how it works. It works like leaven going in to dough. It is completely and utterly transformational from the inside out. So you, you, you start with your dough. As you were to put the leaven in, it would expand. It would transform that lump of dough into this loaf of bread that you could bake. Now, I'll tell you why I know this. My wife has a bread starter. And she bakes unbelievable homemade bread. I didn't know much about this, so I've watched her do it. And she does this whole thing, puts it together, puts a bread starter in, and, and kind of lays it out. And overnight, you wake up, and it has grown. It has changed. It has gone from this little lump to this legitimate loaf. See, I can tell my wife, see, it's biblical for you to bake. Right? <laughs> Keep going. <clears throat> Transformational from the inside out. Now this is true, again, both individually and corporately, both of the kingdom citizens and of the kingdom overall. If we know Jesus, we should be changing from the inside out. Now here's the hard part of that. Oftentimes, and the fancy word for our growth in Christ is sanctification, okay? Uh, just here, our growth in becoming more like Jesus. Uh, so the hard part is our sanctification oftentimes comes a lot more slowly than we want it to. And when looking at a survey of our life, what can be more encouraging is five years ago, am I a little bit more like Jesus now than I was then? Is my anger a little more curbed now than it was then? Or my lust and greed a little bit more curbed now than it was then? Is my struggle with gossip more curbed now than it was then? There should be this ongoing transformational growth in our life. But we don't always see it in the day-to-day. It's kind of like when you see those family members that you never see or want to see on the holidays. And you look and you haven't seen their kids in like two years. And you go, oh my word, they've grown. Well, it's hard for parents to see that on the day-to-day. But when you see it. Over this long period, you go, oh, wow, there's change. It's to look at your life and say, okay, big picture. Is the Spirit of God changing me from the inside out? Not only is that true on an individual level, but corporately. Are we as a church changing and growing, becoming more and more mature? But not only that, is our citizenship in God's kingdom permeating and impacting the fallen kingdom of the world? If you were to move tomorrow or I were to move tomorrow, would our neighbors be sad that the light and salt of Jesus was leaving their street or would they still not even know our names? Would your company miss you, not because of a bottom line, but because of your kingdom of Christ influence? Places should get better when Christians show up. 
The kingdom of God is transformational inside out. And then lastly, so we see how it starts. We see the nature and characteristic of it. Lastly, look at this one with me, 44 through 46. It's the value of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. All Jesus is saying right there is the rule and reign of Christ is the singular most valuable thing that could ever be true in our life. The rule and reign of Jesus is the most valuable thing that any of us could ever have. And you got you to think about that one. It's more valuable than your spouse. It's more valuable than your kids. It's more valuable than your job, more valuable than your friends, more valuable than your assets. The rule and reign of Jesus in our lives is the greatest treasure any human could ever possess. This is where in really practical ways. And do you know why that is, by the way? It's because if that is true, everything else I just named actually begins to take on their rightful place of value and importance. So, so uh, my marriage, the potential of my marriage is fulfilled and seen and enjoyed and experienced when the rule of reign of Jesus is true over it. Does that make sense? Uh, my kids are put in the proper perspective and they're parented in the right ways when the rule and reign of Jesus is reigning over them. Amen? That's why that's the singular most important thing for us. Okay, the rule and reign of Jesus, the grace of all treasures. Now here's we have to sit back and say, where in my life, or in all candidness before the Lord, where in my life am I stiff-arming the rule and reign of Jesus? I don't mind him being king over my marriage, but he didn't king over my money. I don't mind him being king over my money, but he's not gonna be king over my lust. I don't mind him being king over my lust, but he's not gonna be king over my pride. Okay, I don't mind him being king over my pride, but he's not going to be king over my medicating my anxiety with alcohol. Whatever it is, where in your life and mine are we stiff-arming? Right, college football is upon us. We're stiff-arming the rule and reign of Jesus. Because whether we acknowledge him or not, he is king. And if we have repented and placed our faith in him, we are citizens of his kingdom. And a subject is not permitted to look at his or her king and say, no. And this is where self-confession, this is where it gets a little hard for me sometimes. And I could blame it 
on living in a democratic, capitalistic society. It's ultimately the root of my sin. But it's just easier for me to see Jesus as my president, not as my king. Jesus is not president. He does not hold his office because we voted on him. He does not take his throne because he won the electorate. His policies are not up for our discussion and debate. And his rules and regulations are not allowed to be appealed to the Supreme Court of our own emotions and desires. He is king, amen? And what the king says goes. And this is why in the most unexpected, counterintuitive way we could imagine, when we see the king take on the cross, he becomes the most trustworthy current king of all time. Because it would be scary to be submitted to a king that has every ounce of power over all creation unless that king went to the cross. It would be hard to submit yourself to a king that had never suffered, but a king that took on all of suffering upon himself so that we could be set free. I can trust that king. And when that king dies, so ultimately I don't have to, that king is worthy of my life. See, Jesus is not just the greater son of David who's a greater king. He's the greater son of David who's a greater king who went to the cross. And it is the king with the cross that makes the kingdom utterly different than the world has ever seen. And so when we come to King Jesus, we come to a king with nail marks in his hands. And when he extends it out and says, trust me, the degree to which he has gone is made readily apparent. That is our king. And it is his kingdom, his rule, and his reign that is the defining characteristic of our lives. Let's pray. God, we ask in your kindness that justice was done to your word and that honor was given to your name. God, for all the ways in which your rule and reign is not practically true in my life, I repent. I ask even now that in the power of your spirit that it would move in two ways this morning. One, that those who have repented of their sins and only by your grace entered the kingdom, that where their, line is, that where their life is not aligned with that, would you convict them to repentance? And for those who have not yet repented and believed in King Jesus, that they would, in the power of your spirit, be moved to do so. It's in your wonderful name I pray.
Amen.